Got everything fixed there now. <laughs> Mask coming off, microphone coming off. Good morning. It's great to see everyone who's here and welcome to, again to those of you who are online. So today we're looking at Exodus 3 like Andrew read. Um, Exodus 3, it's actually, if you've got the handout, whether online or in person, it actually right, comes right after that famous burning bush scene. So maybe, maybe we should have had you read it, Andrew. We kind of went back and forth, but maybe we should have prefaced it so that when you heard these words of what God was saying, like, did you picture it coming from a burning bush? Because <laughs> that was the scene. It's different, too, than what we've seen in Genesis so far. You know, this is the first time in the book of Exodus that God has explicitly shown up. And again, he's shown up in this burning bush, and that's how he's communicating to Moses. And it's different, it's a shift than how we saw God identifying himself to humanity and to his chosen family in um, Genesis, right? In the book of Genesis, God would talk to like Abraham. It would say, the Lord appeared and said to Abraham. It sounded like one person talking to another person. The same with Isaac. When, when, with Jacob, you know, when, God, when Jacob wrestled with God, it seemed like Jacob was wrestling with a man. But now here in this text in Exodus, it's different. God does, like Andrew read, he does identify himself as the God the deity or idol of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. But then Moses asks for God's name. And since God is giving Moses orders here, right? He told Moses to go and do something. When Moses asks for his name, he's asking, like, what's your authority for this? You know, the emissary's question is asking for authorization. What is God's title? What's his authority for this official calling? Moses needs to know if he's going to show up in front of the people of Israel and say, here I am to do this calling in the name of, of who? And God says, God answers with, Eya Aser Eya, which probably is translated in your Bible, I am who I am. One Hebrew scholar to just really communicate the fullness of that, that Hebrew tense translates it as, I will be who I will be. I am that I am. I am he that endures. You know, that really gives us the fullness of that term. And then God says, the Lord says, tell him I am. Yahweh has called me. That's the word Lord, right? If you ever see in your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, Lord, that's this term Yahweh. When George wrote that first um, study for the Pentateuch, understanding the fear of the Lord. He had a little clip from the Bible Project, and they, they broke down um, where this term comes from. That's a great thing to go back to and refer to to understand this more. Go through it with your kids if you have kids. But this is God's chosen way to reveal himself with this term. And what he's really saying with this term is, I alone am the self-existent one, the Lord. I will do as I intend. None of my purposes will be frustrated or thwarted. And the astute or faithful reader of the Pentateuch, when they hear this name of God, 
This name that means I will do as I intend. I'm the self-existent Lord. Nothing frustrates me. Right? The faithful reader will tie that to the promises that we've been reading about throughout the beginning of Genesis. And there's been those short-term, short-time-framed promises um, that God has already been accomplishing, like in Genesis 12, where God told Abram, Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to make you a great nation. How he tells Abram, you're going to be a blessing to others. Others will be blessed for you. And now the reader knows, like, those things are already happening, right? Like, the, this, through the seemingly hopeless, futureless Abraham and Sarah, we've got this great nation. Maybe they're just on the verge of becoming a nation, but this great people group that even the most powerful king at the time, Pharaoh of Egypt, can't limit, can't frustrate. The reader sees this and ties it to who God is saying he is, the understanding of the Lord. We've already seen people be blessed through Abraham who shouldn't be blessed, namely like his nephew Lot. We see blessings coming through Abraham. And the reader knows this is the Lord, the self-existent one, whose promises will not be frustrated. And knowing that inspires the reader to remember that great promise, to keep looking for that great promise from Genesis 3. The promise of the wounded Savior, the promise of the Savior whose heel will be bruised by the enemy, but who will crush the enemy and overcome the curse of sin. The reader, through this name of the Lord, should know that God will do as he intends, and he will fulfill his purpose and promise for that Savior who will overcome the curse and death. And think how important that was for the original audience. And I think it's, you know, it's good for us anytime we come to a text to think, okay, what would this have meant for that original audience? And though I'd love to get into more about that original audience, I think it could suffice it to say, well, first, we know, right, the audience wasn't the enslaved Israelites. Those are the characters, the people in the narrative. That's not who it's written to. It's written to kind of a continuum but to Israelites. Today we have copy. The copy we have today would have been written to Israelites that were under the law. Israelites who were under the law and were failing at every point overall. That understanding of the true Lord, Yahweh, I will be who I will be. I am who I am, the self-existent one who accomplishes all he intends. That name of the Lord, that understanding of the Lord was getting diluted or forgotten by that original audience. And I don't think it's much different for us today. I think we likewise, we have the text, we have the biblical understanding of the Lord, but we likewise dilute it, and secularize it. There was this term put out by some sociologists in the early 2000s um, called moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's not like, right, like it's a tenant that people subscribe, tenants that are uh, a religion that people subscribe to. It just is that these sociologists were curious in the early 2000s, like, you know, if we survey the culture, what are some predominant perspectives, worldviews, if you will? And 
they found that the predominant, the most influential view of teenagers who considered themselves Christians in the early 2000s held to these couple of tenets that these sociologists called moralistic therapeutic deism. And so moralistic therapeutic deism consists of believing in some God who exists and created the world. Doesn't sound too bad so far. It consists of believing in a God who basically just wants people to be congenial and kind, and that the goal of life is to feel good in our temporary conditions and self-fulfillment. And then it's a general belief that good works is what qualifies one for heaven or eternal life. And again, as they put forth this survey, they found that most teenagers who considered themselves Christians, these were the ideas that they held to. Uh, the veteran research Barna, I think we hear a lot of things from him, um, said that people who hold to these tenets, they're not anti-religion, they're not anti-Christianity, it just is they're not willing to surrender themselves to the authentic demands of biblical Christianity. In fact, they can't even believe that a real faith would put demands on them or anybody. And I was kind of, you know, I was first exposed to this actually when I went out to Seattle to do training in Redemption Group. And so as I was preparing this, I was thinking about this term. And I'm like, you know, is that just kind of come and gone? You know, maybe that was just a fad of a decade. Um, but actually, they did another study last April. And they found that those teenagers of the early 2000s who are now, right, under 50 adult generation, that they still hold just as firmly to those ideas and those beliefs as they did as teenagers. Which means, I'm not trying to draw lines in the sand of like, this is them and this is us. This means, you know, if you think about the demographic of our church, we have a lot of under 50 adults who as teenagers would claim to be Christians. Like, we've got to be honest. This has influenced us as a church. Or, at the, or maybe even more, you know, at the very least, it's probably influenced us, if we're honest. Maybe it's even what we hold to. It's not a biblical Christianity. It's not the biblical understanding of who the Lord is. It's sort of like what George preached on last week, all these modern formations of self that come to us. George has mentioned a couple times this book. Um, it's by Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I love the subtitle. Cultural Amnesia, Expressive individu Individualism and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And it puts forth how these modern formulations of self come primarily from psychological, sexual, and therapeutic pursuits, right? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And there's, I mean, I could go on. If you have more questions, we could talk about it in the Q&A, but it's there, and it's influencing us. And for some of us, though, we know it's out there, but we haven't allowed it to influence us. Like, we were raised in the church. Maybe our family was strong as well. Like, 
No, we can say, we can hear that and be like, no, that is not what I'm holding to. I have consciously, you know, not held to that. I, I know, I understand, I've been taught the biblical understanding of the Lord. But still, so often, even if we're grounded on those core central truths of the gospel and understanding of the Lord, it's still easy for us to forget or to get foggy, right? It's not that we've diluted the gospel and turned it into something else. It's just that we don't stay intentional to the central core of the gospel. You know, we get focused on worries or pleasures because we're just tired and worn out sometimes and we just want some comfort and we get seduced by leisures and temporary feelings of pleasure in the flesh, or we're just bored. We get foggy and we get distracted. We get seduced by the leisures of life. Um, Tuesday when I came to the ministry team meeting, I was, you know, we normally talk about the sermon and I was sharing different aspects. And I said to George and Lawrence, I'm like, isn't there some like Narnia, C.S. Lewis character who, right, they, they kind of get foggy and they lose focus and they just, it's like they're kind of sleepy and they don't remember. And Lawrence reminded me it was from The Silver Chair, which if you have not read that book in the Chronicles of Narnia as an adult, I picked it up this week and skimmed it and read it pretty quick. Um, it is a great book as an adult. Like I'm like, these are some great lessons to read. Um, but I'm assuming most people know the Chronicles of Narnia, right? They're these four siblings, and they get to go to Narnia. And then over time, for various reasons, they, they can't come to Narnia anymore. And then in the silver chair, it's their cousin Eustace. He gets to, and Eustace is the one, just if you remember the Dawn Treader, he's the one who's turned into a dragon, which is also a great metaphor. But anyway, so it's Eustace back in Narnia with his classmate, Jill Pole. And so they get to Narnia, and right away they get separated. And Jill meets Aslan. And he tells her, okay, there's going to be four signs that you need to know that are going to guide you during your time in Narnia. And so he says to her, you know, after he tells him her, he says to her, like, do you know them now? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. And he's like, well, say them back to me. She doesn't have it. So after a little practice and work on recitation, she finally has him down. She can say them back. She knows them. And then she gets connected back with Eustace. And she tells Eustace the four signs that are to guide them. And then they have to go to this, like, Council of Owls, and they tell the Council of Owls the four signs. And then they get a Narnian guide, and they tell him the signs. And, and they're saying the signs to one another, the core signs that are supposed to guide them during their time in Narnia. But then they start to get into the thick of their journey and their travel, and they're in the wilderness, and it's barren, and it's ruinous, and they're exposed to the elements, and like their Narnian guide teaches them, like you should sleep sitting up back to back to conserve your body heat, and then you can use your blankets, you know, the best to stay warm. You know, they're just exposed, and they're cold, and they're worn out, and they have food, but it's like eel stew every day, and they're kind of getting bored of stewed eels. So it's just this long, worn out, tired, cold, bored, drudgery as they're trying to go on their journey. And then they come across this beautiful lady who's dressed in emerald green. And it's quite clear to the reader and the Narnian guide that this lady is not any good. She's a witch. She's a sorceress. 
but she tells the children, oh yeah, to continue on in your journey, you should go to this city. And in this city, you're going to have warm beds and hot food and hot drinks and blazing fires, and that's all they can think about. And they stop telling themselves about the signs, and they're just talking about the city and the comforts they're going to have. And C.S. Lewis puts down, it's weird because although they're talking about these great things, it doesn't produce goodness in them. They just end up being more irritable towards each other. And most importantly, they forget the signs. Jill stops saying the signs every evening. They forget the signs. And when they show up to that city, it almost leads to their demise. And that's a lot like us. Because we're cold, because we're worn out, because we're bored, because we just want some relief, we forget the core understanding of who the Lord is. And we're more focused on these temporary seductions and pleasures that we think will give us relief but often lead to our demise. But for others of us, it's not that we've diluted the gospel or the core tenets. It's not that we've forgotten to remember the core. Sometimes it's that we're holding too tight to our applications of the gospel and our understanding of who the Lord is. Paul talks about this in Romans 14 in 1 Corinthians 8. He talks about how we hold too tight to our opinions, to our convictions on debatable matters. And these opinions and convictions, they can come, you know, even maybe most strongly from our religious traditions and our quote-unquote Christian heritage, where we have a certain way we like to apply things. And Paul says that we do this when we become puffed up or arrogant. We form convictions and opinions that should just be personal, right? They should depend on like our gender and our demographic and the point of history we live in. And we should apply the gospel. And we have opinions and we have our convictions that we form. And Paul gives examples of where believers are holding on too tight to their convictions, like which day of the week you want to celebrate. Right? Some people want it to, and I still know people like this today, they want to celebrate the Sabbath, which is Saturday. They want to set the Saturday aside and make it a day of rest and holy. Other people want to do it on the Lord's Day, the day the Lord resurrected. That would be Sunday. Other people want to have every day the same to honor the Lord. Uh, the other example Paul gives is like whether to eat certain foods or not. But most importantly, Paul says that we will know that this is happening, that we are putting our convictions and our opinions, we're elevating those above God, above the centrality of the gospel and our understanding of the Lord. We'll know we're doing that when we're starting to draw divisions in the sand. We're judging others. We're drawing lines like, well, those people do that and we do this. And we don't want to fellowship with people who have different opinions or different convictions, again, on the debatable matters, right? We do this a lot as Christians. We all know this with COVID. COVID didn't start anything new. It just brought out what was in us. We get so divided over our opinions and our convictions on COVID regulations, 
we can't fellowship together and stay together over the core understanding of the gospel and who the Lord is. We get divided over our opinions on racial tensions. We get divided over our political opinions. We lose our core identity, right? We're supposed to be identified as the people of God. God is love, and if we fellowship with him, we should have his love, his love for others. But we end up dividing ourselves and disassociating with one another over matters that have nothing to do with the centrality of the gospel. We lose our core identity of understanding who God is and is calling on us. And all of these problems, whether we're diluting the gospel, whether we're just tired and forgetful of the gospel, or whether we're putting our opinions and convictions above the gospel, all of those things are problems because they focus more on who am I and not who is the Lord. Right? Moses, when Andrew read the text, Moses says, who am I to go? And God doesn't answer him. When Moses asks, what is your name, Moses, or God answers him. We do well to worry less about who am I and to concern ourselves more with who is the Lord. Who is this Lord who is calling us? You know, from the begin- if we're going to know who this Lord is, what do we know thus far from the beginning of the Pentateuch? You know, we know two things clearly. One, we know the Lord. He's the self-existent one, the creator, who has promises that he says he will do. And the second thing we know is humanity has sins and repeated failures and is in desperate need of help. And a major unfolding theme, not just through the Pentateuch, but through all of the Bible, is these expectations, these sort of gasps of expectations, right? We go, and then it's by disappointed size. Ever since Genesis 3, where God promises to send a Savior, then there's the Savior, right? It's supposed to be a seed, a male offspring from Eve, And then Eve gets Cain. And if you never knew anything else, you'd be like, wow, you know, that's what Eve says. Like, behold, I've gotten the male offspring, the Lord. And then you read about Cain, disappointment. And then there's Noah, right? Noah's dad names him Noah, saying maybe this is the one who's going to overcome the curse. And Noah does all that God told him to and builds the ark. And there's this worldwide disaster that ruins all sin. And you think, maybe this is it. Humanity is finally going to figure it out. And then Noah gets off the ark, builds a vineyard, gets drunk, and exposes himself with the help of his son a bit. You know, expectation and disappointment, and it continues on with Abraham, right? He's got some big moral failures. You're quite clear with him. Though he has faith, he is not the promised offspring. Now we're at Moses, and we're going to get the law and the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, and then there's going to be the disappointment of the golden calf debacle. And then they finally get to the promised land, and we can be so excited, but they don't kick out the people. But then they get judges, and maybe that'll help, but then the judges really not good. Then they get the kings, and you've got, right, the glory days of the kings, and King David, and King Solomon, and the building of the temple, and the reader is excited and expectant, and then you see how Solomon's life ends, 
and the country divides and continues to spiral out of control until there's the exile, then you're like, oh, but they're coming back to Jerusalem now. They're going to rebuild the temple. You know, maybe this is it. But again, it's just disappointment. Expectation and disappointment again and again in the unfolding of the Bible until, until Jesus the Christ, the promised Messiah, comes Knowing this God, knowing this self-existent Lord, this triune God, God the Father who is sovereign and calls the plan, Jesus Christ the Son, God the Son who accomplishes his plan, and God the Spirit who now indwells us and continues on his plan, knowing this Lord, knowing this God as a living reality that we can encounter and experience with fear and awe and reverence, knowing this Lord changes everything. Moses knew this, right? In the burning bush scene, Moses was scared. He hid his face. He was scared of God. But by the end of Exodus, spoiler alert, after the golden calf scene, and Moses realizes well, God says to Moses, like, you know, I, I, I've had enough <laughs> of this people. You're a stiff-necked people. I'm going to keep my promise. You're going to go to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. Moses realized that a promised land without God's presence is no promised land. Moses knows God's Presence is everything. And that's really the question we need to ask ourselves. Do you know God's presence is everything? Or do you live as if there's some promised land that's got nothing to do with God's presence? If we live... Well, maybe I should say it this way. You know, we may need to just be honest and take some stock. Like, maybe we've diluted who God truly is. God is big. God is scary. And he's not something we can manage. And often, we'll make some other version of God that we can sort of control and minimize and fold up and fit in our pocket and take out when we need. If you've done that in some way, you need to surrender that version you've made up of God. Maybe you need to accept Jesus Christ as your promised Savior who has come. Either way, you know, whether you've diluted God or just never really accepted Jesus Christ as your promised Savior, either way, it's imperative, crucial, and it's freeing to admit you're not God who's dictating everything. He is God, and you're not. And he made a way of redemption and reconciliation and peace and true blessedness and happiness through faith in Jesus Christ. Accept that. Surrender whatever else you're hanging on to. Or maybe you just need to wake up, like Ephesians 5 says, Wake up and Christ will shine on you. Maybe you're like those children 
in Narnia. You're walking around in a stupor. You're seduced and distracted. Maybe you're even oppressed and on your way to your demise, and you don't even know it. A major concern of the Pentateuch is that God's people would know him. If you grow in your knowledge of God, when we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Lord and don't stay stagnant, we grow in our awe and our fear of him. And as we grow in our understanding and our awe and fear of him, we deepen in our worship, right? That was in that text too um, where it says, you know, I'm going to bring you back to this mountain so you can serve me. That's God's intention so that we can worship God and experience him. And as we increase in our understanding of him, we deepen in our worship of him. You can't serve both Yahweh and idols. He's not a fool. If you're distracted by sex or comfort or ease of life or substances, you aren't worshiping him. You aren't abiding in the, love, in the fear and awe of him. Or maybe you just need to humble yourself. Quit thinking your convictions, your opinions are what everybody needs to do. Humble yourself. Don't be self-righteous. Quit judging others. True faith in Christ and confidence in his power and his victory over sin and death cuts off any enslaving things, whether it's convictions we're putting over people, opinions, or enslaving sins. Really, in short, all of us need to worship, need to worship the Lord. The Lord who will do as he intends, who none of his purposes will be frustrated. He alone is the Lord. Meditate on that. Chew on that. You know, if there's things that you struggle with, like you're like, okay, there's this, those short time-framed experience or purpose in my life or maybe seemingly obstacle or barrier to God's plans or purposes, bring that to him. He's the Lord. He's the self-existent one. He can handle it. Bring it to him. And look at it in light of his greatest promise. Right? Remember his greatest promise. He promised to send the Savior. And Jesus Christ came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and resurrected. If that's true, that changes everything. And look at whatever is frustrating in light of that. And just tell God, like, I don't get it. Can you help me understand that? You know, if you sent your son and he conquered death, help me to understand this. And expand and deepen in your biblical knowledge of him. And do it with others, right? Talk with others who are clearly walking in the fear of the Lord who have that awe of the Lord and joy of him. You know, I know I read somewhere, um, it was making the point that, like, if you realize you're without wisdom, I, I don't have wisdom, 
you're a fool. Like, okay, I have no wisdom, I am a fool, I realize that, but how do I possibly get to wisdom? How do we do that? Well, the Bible says, if you want to be wise, walk with the wise, right? Walk with the wise and you will be wise. Spend time with people who have those fruits and traits in their life. And it's okay, too, to just be honest. Like, you're going to be tempted. As long as you're living in this fleshly stuff, you're going to be tempted. You're going to want to return to slavery as we live in this flesh. You're going to be tempted by desires and distractions. You're going to be tempted to judge. You're going to be tempted to gossip. The temptations are there. But if you find yourself in the temptations, giving in to them, characterized by judging, hating others, gossiping, enslaved to fleshly desires, just confess it. Um, I used to say to my kids when they were young, like if they did something wrong, like I would just over-exaggerate it. Like, what does God want you to do if you did something wrong? Like, do you have to cut off your hand? No, and I would go through all these things. But the point was, all we have to do as Christians, we don't want you to cut off your hand or anything extreme like that. Just confess it. Like, not that bad. <laughs> confess it. Of course, our pride blocks us from it. Share it with your house church. Bring it to the light. Share it with your house church leader, maybe, if it's heavier, with an elder, ministry team. Come into the wellness center, but just confess it. Because confession is just one more way we deepen in worship and in our understanding of the Lord. Let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come to you and ask that you would strengthen us and guide us and help us to expand and grow and deepen in our biblical understanding of you. Thank you that you have clearly given us your word. Thank you that you have given us your indwelling spirit. Thank you that you have given us the church to encourage one another. And I pray that as individuals, as households, as house churches, as a local church, and even as a united church, Lord, that we together would deepen in our understanding of you and our worship of you. Show us how to do that. Make us wise. We know wisdom comes with your spirit, and we ask you for that. And we pray all these things through our advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen.